Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So this week, we're planning to put this podcast out sort of right at the end of the year. Well, people are hopefully at home and enjoying themselves a bit, but maybe want something else to listen to. We thought that we could look back over this year and some of our most thought-provoking episodes and play you some of the highlights. Let's begin because in January, we did an episode focusing on conflict-related sexual violence, a kind of 101. That was a really important one. I really appreciated that, that we picked that one out. I've had several comments from people saying how much they appreciated that podcast. And it, it helped me enormously in my reporting because there's been several cases where I've been asked to do some reporting or contribute to allegations of uh, conflict-related sexual violence. And every time I really was like, oh, I know about this because we had this on the podcast. And we spoke to Professor Kim Tui Selinger, uh, then special advisor to the ICC prosecutor on sexual violence in conflict. And... Uh, now uh, advisor to the ICC, Professor Valerie Osterfeld from Canada's Western Law University. Yeah, Valerie's become a special advisor on crimes against humanity. In the podcast, we focused on some of the basic facts like what it is and how its prosecution differs domestically and internationally. But we also discussed uh, what a survivor-centred approach can really look like in investigations. And we touched on why it is that armed forces soldiers keep on committing these crimes. So in this exchange, Kim and Valerie are telling us what's changed in the understanding of gendered crimes in the last five to 10 years. And Kim starts us off with her answer. Yeah, I think a lot has changed in the last 10 years. This is a good opportunity to explain what PSVI stands for, if you like. (laughs) I know it's Victims in Conflict, and it must be preventing. Yeah, so it was an initiative launched just about 10 years ago by the British government. It's the Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative. So the conflict word isn't in the title, but that's what they were looking at. And it's just one expression of political will. So the UK government has taken a real front role in shining a light on this issue, which is good. So I think some of the developments in the last few years, just in terms of awareness, right, we have finally started looking at this issue as something that should be addressed, not just in terms of jurisprudence, but in terms of survivors' needs. The question of reparations, right, has come up quite recently and really has become central to the conversation. We're talking more about men and boys and how they are affected and can suffer sexual and gender-based violence. Also, as Valerie mentioned, LGBTIQ individuals. So there's an awareness that it's not just about women and girls. There's also a tension about making sure we don't take the spotlight away from the fact that we have a long way to go in terms of dealing and then preventing what happens to women and girls in these contexts. So I think those are some major developments. Also, one piece that hasn't We've seen the data in the academic literature for a while, but it's not part of the conversation so much yet, but it's female perpetration. I've seen, you know, we've had the data for almost 10 years now in certain contexts, but that that is not yet part of this discourse. And I, I, I await that conversation because it forces us to bring a little more nuance to our understanding of gender and how it plays out. I'm hearing a number of spin-off podcasts that we're going to have to do on uh, this. But <laughs> before we go any further, Valerie, what would you say has changed? If I could expand the timeline a little bit. I have been involved in this, and this is showing my age, since the creation of the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal. And I have seen 
a massive change in the understanding of what is sexual and gender-based violence and how to prosecute it in a gender-sensitive, trauma-informed, victim-centered manner. All the way from, I recall fighting for the understanding that rape is a crime against humanity and a war crime back in 1993-94. That just sounds incredible to even have to have had to have had that fight then. Yes, it 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 is incredible that given that it was even recognized in international criminal law as a crime against humanity and war crime back then, but to surface, if I can use that term that was coined by the late Professor Rhonda Copeland to surface what sexual violence is, what gender-based violence is, what I've seen in all of those years is the continual servicing of different forms of sexual and gender-based violence and then deeper understanding of each of those. So at first, the focus was on rape, and all of the attention was on rape. And that required a lot of unpacking. And, and the fact that it's not only women who are raped in war, that girls, men, boys, non-binary individuals are raped in armed conflict And what does that mean for defining what the crime is so it's not only focused on female body parts, for example? Then to understanding sexual slavery, to understanding forced marriage as an other inhumane act, to understanding different types of sexual violence, and then to widen the whole thing to understand where all of that sits in gender-based violence. It has come very far but with all sorts of bumps along the way, because it seemed in all of the different tribunals, we would make one big step forward and then take a half step back and then a big step forward and a half step back. And that was Valerie Osterveld ending that discussion on conflict-related sexual violence. So moving on to February, um, one of the strangest stories that we've covered in international justice. Remember, this was one also that got quite a lot of comments in from people saying, Really? Because there are eight Rwandan men who are stuck essentially under house arrest in Niger. They were former detainees of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which has now been closed. And all of these men had either been acquitted or actually released after serving their sentences. But instead of returning to Rwanda after their trials or their acquittals, where they were faced with the very real fear of being rearrested and retried, They went to Niger after an agreement that uh, they would be given residency permits and the right to work with the aim of one day applying for passports. But instead, when they arrived in Niger, they were detained and stripped of their rights and stuck under house arrest. We spoke to defense lawyer Kate Gibson, who was representing one of the eight men, Prosper Mugiraneza. She addressed the shortcomings of the international courts and that they don't actually have plans for defendants who were acquitted of crimes. And here is Kate. Criminal trials have two possible outcomes, convictions or acquittals. And if they don't, then they're not real. Like we're all just playing a game, which I, I don't think we are. And, and as a state, you can't support and play your role in the International Criminal Justice Project without also accepting to provide support to defendants when they're acquitted or when they finish their sentences. They can't just be, you know, shoved in a house in Niger with all the states just pretending it's not happening. You know, these are people. They have rights. They have the right to family life. They have the right to freedom of movement. They have all basic human rights. So when we have this situation, 
like we now do at the ICTR, that the people who were acquitted, which is no mean feat, you know, just quietly, that doesn't just happen. When these people who are acquitted then end up back in prison and we don't fix that, what we're essentially saying is once you're charged as a war criminal, you know, your life is over. Conviction, acquittal, it doesn't matter. And that makes this whole process a farce, right? And it's not. A lot of us have dedicated the better part of our lives to making sure it's not a farce. So I I do expect the principles of the mechanism, the registrar and, and the president to harness this political will that is there for supporting international criminal justice and direct it back here and explain to states that how their selective support only of convictions is is really dangerous and it and it's wrong and it's led to this situation that's horrific and and can't be allowed to continue. And Kate, what is it like for you as a defense lawyer? Barbara was saying that the whole system seems to be geared towards conviction. And how is it to work as a defense lawyer in that system and when you deal with clients who you've, you know, after very hard work have managed to get acquitted, which also is, you know, huge work on your part. Do you feel also that the tribunals are very much geared towards only one outcome? That question is answered by the fact that there was no plan in place for people who were getting acquitted. You know, the idea, I, I met Prosper McGuerinaise when I was 25 and now I'm nearly 45, right? So that's 20 years that I've known this client. And the fact that after all that work and his acquittal, in my view, as someone who knows that case is absolutely the right outcome, after two decades together, the fact that he's sitting on the floor in a house that he can't leave, it's sickening. It's just, oh, it's, it's, it can't be right. And let's not forget the ICTR cost $1.3 billion. You know, think about that, the logistics, the facilities, the staff, the planning, and, and none of that was dedicated towards, all right, what's going to happen? Not only when people get acquitted, but when they serve their sentences. You know, and, and Barbara's idea of amending the statute is a really good one and it's something we talk about as a group of defence lawyers. The, the mechanism is a UN mechanism. The ICTR was a UN tribunal. All states have an obligation to cooperate with these tribunals. But we see the judges consistently finding that cooperation refers only to arresting suspects, handing over evidence, surrendering accused, building cases. The judges have never gone that far to interpret cooperation as meaning you've also got to give asylum or residency to people who are acquitted. So that opening is there and we have invited the judges to, we have served that up to them many times and none of them have have smashed it over the net for us. So, you know, I think it comes down to this larger problem that states view these international criminal trials as, as Barbara said, these mechanisms for just, you know, punishment and this is how we're going to get the war criminals and not as criminal trials which adjudicate allegations and are led by evidence. Since our recording, one of the men held in Niger has passed away while the other seven men remain under de facto house arrest uh, in violation of the agreement reached with the United Nations, according to the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals, which is looking at this case, which is dealing with the kind of follow-up of the Rwanda trials. And also deals with the follow-up from the Yugoslav trials. 
But still dealing with Rwanda, in June, we sat down with Lucy Gaynor to go through what was something of a weird, maybe a little bit of a bombshell moment in Hague terms, at least. There was a new procedure being proposed by the prosecution to the court as to how to deal with the detainee they had, Felician Kabuga, 90-year-old Rwanda genocide suspect, former coffee and tea tycoon, who was accused of various crimes connected with the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda, including uh, his connection to the broadcast of hateful propaganda and his connection alleged uh, for arming militias. And Kabuga now has severe dementia, and unsurprisingly, it was determined that he was not fit to stand trial. But what was surprising was the court's suggestion of a, quote, alternative findings procedure, somewhat similar to a trial, but without Kabuga present and no possibility of conviction, but a kind of way where they would lay out the facts and have judges decide on them. This decision was met with a range of reaction from outrage to to claims that this was absolutely absurd. Lucy Gaynor is an historian of international criminal trials at the University of Amsterdam, and she had been following the Kabuga case closely, and she added her expert opinion to the mix. I mean, one of the interesting things that I spotted in the submissions before this decision was made is that the defense, um, Altit, regularly refers to it as a trial of the facts and the prosecution and the judges refer to it as an examination of the facts. And I really think that there was a clear disconnect in the trial already of the defense felt that this was essentially going to be a trial that wasn't a trial, a combination. And it seems to me a combination of a trial in abstentia and a kind of truth commission that that still kind of from their point of view, places their client as a suspect when really he's not fit to stand trial. Um, but the reactions, I think, have been very interesting. I, I was speaking to um, somebody in Arusha last week who's been covering it as well, who says that, you know, my observations are completely from my point of view as a historian. And so I hadn't been as in touch with victims, for example, or affected groups. And he was saying to me that, you know, the, the trial had petered out to such an extent that there was such a frustration People have lost hope. That Yeah, because my, my instinct was that this seems absurd as a solution, but perhaps for victim groups, this is a useful solution. But I actually think it had, it had almost reached absurd dimensions before now that people have just kind of lost interest. And you saw um, there was an ironic moment when the submissions were first being made where um, prosecutor Rupert Elderkin said, you know, this is so important for the international community that are watching this trial. And I mean, I had been out there. It was just me. Yeah, and, you're you know, it. You're like, the who, international community. Yeah, who, who you are, are you? my lifeline. The fact that you tweet about it is the is the is the way that I keep track of this trial because yeah. there's just so much else going on grabbing my attention. So I was and so it's grateful. So irregular. I mean, so it's just irregular. occasionally comes up, and then you dive into it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, the first day, the opening statements. Um, the the courtroom was very busy, obviously with press, but with a lot of other, a lot of young kind of legal students and and other members of the public. And um, but it was really interesting for me to see that everyone was sitting there saying, you know, where's he going to sit? Where's he going to be? And even the security guards were going to be like, he's going to be sitting right there. And there was this real sense. And of course, at that stage, he was boycotting the proceedings because he had a dispute over his defense attorney. And there was as soon as he wasn't there, everyone kind of went, oh. And then the next day for the defense opening statements, there was hardly anybody there. And so even at the very beginning, 
him as a figure was attracting a lot of attention, but I think his trial was was not in the same way that people were, you know, excited that he had been caught and that he was finally on trial. But then the substance of the trial kind of just went under the radar a little bit. Where do we go from here? Anything to say? Or is that uh, that? Uh, what else would you like to add in, Lucy? Because uh, I'm just bamboozled by this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea and the seeming idea behind a quote unquote trial of the facts is to, as you say earlier, establish that these crimes have happened. And to me, that sounds like something close to a truth commission or a historical commission. But if all of these safeguards for Kabuga's rights have to be met, then it it is, as far as I can see it, if that's the form that it takes, it's going to be a, a trial kind of masquerading as a truth commission. And, and therefore, will it actually benefit either law or history? Or will it just do justice to neither? And since we recorded this, the UN appeal judges uh, ordered that Kabuga's war crimes trial be indefinitely suspended. And they've rejected completely these plans for an alternative findings procedure. So he's kind of stuck in limbo. Uh, there's no trial. And all that investment, uh, there was a whole new courtroom built almost specially for him in Arusha, where he never actually got to in the end. And all of those medical reports were commissioned to try and assess his health. All of that's been for nothing. And we have still to figure out what is going to happen with him if he's going to stay in The Hague or if he's going to be released in some way. But that is uh, something that we haven't seen. So we'll look for that next year. This year, looking back, we also had quite a few updates on the situation in Ukraine, including reports of forcible transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia. The ICC made global headlines in March when they issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin and his children's rights commissioner, Maria Lvova-Belova. Both were charged with war crimes for the alleged forced deportation of children. And according to the ICC, incidents involving hundreds of children, many who are being adopted by Russian families. In May, we spoke with Ukrainian international law scholar Yulia Yoffa, who argued that the crimes happening in Ukraine could legally be classified as genocide. And here she is setting out her argument. First of all, um, it is necessary to acknowledge that forcible transfer of children uh, to Russia now, I think it can qualify it can qualify to be a number of crimes. So I, I think it, it is possible to qual qualify it as a war crime, uh, potentially as a crime against humanity and also a violation of a number of the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, including Article 8, which is the right to identity. But uh, I looked into genocide specifically because, well, uh, obviously I'm a Ukrainian and I have been watching what Russian officials uh, are saying about this war for a long time, uh, since 2014. And uh, the rhetoric has been always very, well, anti-Ukrainian. And uh, But I think what made me think of genocide was uh, the use of the word uh, denazification by Putin uh, in his speeches. And that was announced as uh, the aim of this special military operation uh, that is the invasion that started in February 2022. So from looking at the uh, 
Putin's speeches, but also uh, some of the statements of uh, state officials and uh, of Russian state media, uh, because it's all controlled and financed by Russian government and nothing can appear there without the instruction of uh, the office of the president of Russia. They started talking about denazification and uh, what they meant by it, if I simplify, is that Ukrainians that who don't think that they're Russian, they're Nazis, and they should be eliminated, or uh, Ukraine should be uh, get rid of those people. And that very much uh, sounded like an attack on collectivity uh, of Ukrainians, and not as an, in a way, an individual crime. So obviously, in armed conflicts, uh, war crimes appear, uh, but uh, in this case, it did seem to be, uh, especially in the information campaign, it did seem to be very much the attack on collective identity of Ukrainians. And of course, with uh, the conversations on uh, the nazification, there were a lot of conversation about that, uh, again, Ukraine is not a real country, that it was founded by Lenin. Uh, Ukrainian is not a real language. Ukrainians don't have any culture. Uh, and again, that they don't exist. And they're just Russians, but they forgot about it. So a lot of this was on the background. And then I think I could see that, especially since the February, uh, since February 2022, there was a lot of dehumanization as well uh, in, uh, again, in Russian media, but also state officials where uh, Ukrainians were called subhumans. And a lot of rhetoric just reminded me of Rwandan genocide and uh, what Nazis uh, talked about when they talked about uh, the other. So I, I always sort of looked at it from that side. And obviously, forcible transfer of children, I think it's not the only punishable act that could be qualified as genocide. And now a lot of researchers are working on other punishable uh, acts So because there are also killing and bodily harm that, well, widespread sexual violence. So those could be also qualified uh, as genocide under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. So again, I looked at the, the rhetoric of the Russian government, Russian president, and uh, again, as, as everyone knows, who knows anything about international law, uh, genocide is very difficult to prove because of exactly this special intent uh, an intent to destroy a group as such, uh, in part or as a whole. So I think that at least in this case, because, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, later on, Russian government is very good at documenting everything uh, that they're doing and all their motives. So that's why I looked uh, particularly into genocide and not war crime. But again, I don't d dispute that it could potentially also qualify as a war crime. So that was Yulia Yoffe. And this year we also took a look at what was happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Earlier this year, Armenia had made efforts to join the International Criminal Court as one of a number of the judicial moves as tensions continued to rise in that region. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan have been using so-called lawfare tactics to try and further their own geopolitical and military aims. I know that you've had to cover that uh, a bit uh, at the International Court of Justice, Steph. And this was a timely episode as only a few days after we aired it in September, Azerbaijani troops actually launched a military offensive in Nagorno-Karabakh and they seized that region. 
Before all of that happened, we were speaking with Dr. Melanie O'Brien. She's visiting professor at the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Minnesota. And I know that she's also spent time in Armenia. And she warned that genocide and war crimes were already taking place in Nagorno-Karabakh. Honestly, we are at the point where an action could be brought under the Genocide Convention. Because what we need to remember, and the ICJ has talked about this in the Bosnia-Serbia case, uh, it's talked about the fact that the obligation under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide, the whole point of prevention is to stop it before it gets there. And so we are at a point where I believe that states have an obligation under the Genocide Convention to act to prevent genocide from occurring in Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, I think we are already there. I think we're beyond risk, but that obligation, I think, kicked in some time ago and certainly has kicked in now, and states should be taking action. And so there is room for there to be recourse taken in the ICJ under the Genocide Convention against Azerbaijan. So your next move, if you had to advise the Armenian government, would be possibly to file a genocide case with the ICJ? They absolutely could do that. I would think it would be a sensible thing to do because we are now talking about a population that has been cut off from food and medical aid. You know, there's 120,000 people living there that are now at risk. And, well, it has begun. People are starving. There's nothing on the shelves. There's no food there. I'm sure you're conscious of this. I mean, I've certainly noticed as we've been doing the podcast over the last few years, the number of times you have a sense of states saying, okay, what's the next extra thing that we can do? Let's use a court um, as our vehicle, our mechanism to try to further our diplomatic, uh, political, and sometimes even our military aims. And so you get sort of these counter cases going on at the ICJ. You get a, a country like Armenia weighing up, you know, shall we join the ICC or not? And everybody interpreting it in very kind of geopolitical terms. And there's use of this term lawfare, and, you know, an alternative way of warfare. But do you think that that's a normal development yourself, the way that as these courts mature and get more embedded into our international system, that we end up them being used more and more in these terms or being seen to be used like that? I think that the term lawfare can be overused in the sense that people assume that, for example, just because a conflict is going on and a state uses an international legal mechanism that they are conducting lawfare, but it's perfectly within their rights to use an international legal mechanism, including courts. And that's what they're there for. They're there to be used. We have treaties that are there to be used. If we're talking about the laws of war, we're talking about the Geneva Conventions, they're there to be used in a time of conflict. And and so for the ICC to be a factor in this or for the ICJ to be a factor in this situation, I mean, Armenia brought the case before the International Court of Justice because there are violations, allegedly violations going on of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So they should be using that. I mean, we should see more use of the ICJ when it comes to breaches of human rights treaties as well, more generally. 
But I hesitate to always use the word lawfare simply because there's also a conflict going on because we have these mechanisms there to be used and, and they should be used more often and we would like to have more faith in them that they can be used as a mechanism, you know, a more low-key mechanism rather than armed conflict itself to bring an end to disputes between states. So that was genocide scholar Dr. Melanie O'Brien. And as the situation currently stands, Nagorno-Karabakh is currently under Azerbaijani rule. Tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians have fled the region. And the ICJ has recently ruled that those refugees must have the right of return, but many fear for their safety if they're allowed to go back. And Armenia actually joined the ICC in the end. So uh, I think the numbers changed of the uh, the numbers of states. Is it now 124? Is that the, the new number? That's a new number, yes. In the last part of the year, we've also been intently following events in Gaza and the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And across a number of episodes, we have looked at how to prosecute military actions as war crimes and spoken to both Palestinian and Israeli academics about international humanitarian law and how institutions should uphold the rule of law. We should say that these have been some of our most controversial episodes and we're still looking at how we report this conflict because there's so many opinions about it. Yeah, I think we have to keep centered on the ICC as our main lens through which we we see things and just keep on asking the questions. What possible cases might come up? And if we have a role in this, then that has to be our, our shtick. So in one of these discussions, uh, we got hold of Margaret Satterthwaite, who's the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Independence of Judges and Lawyers. And she stressed the importance of international humanitarian law, the law of war and conflict, and stressed the responsibility held by lawyers in the Israeli Defence Forces, warning that they themselves could be found complicit in war crimes. Here she is. The first thing to say is Israel does have a very clear and robust system of lawyers who advise its military in all times, and especially in times of armed conflict. That actually is ramped up. Second, of course, Israel has the right and obligation to keep its citizens safe, but those horrific acts do not allow Israel to put the international humanitarian law and laws of armed conflict that bind it to one side. So in terms of the role of lawyers during war, it's important to say that there is an obligation under IHL, which has become a customary norm, that states have to make legal advisors available to advise military commanders. And they have to be at such a level where they can opine on how the law applies in a given situation. And that means they've got to put them in place in sufficient numbers, in sufficient training, um, and in contact with the kinds of commanders who are capable of then listening to the advice and carrying it out. So that's just an important background note. One very important thing in this specific context is that Israel clearly accepts this obligation. It has always, in recent conflicts, made legal advisors available to military commanders. And it has done so in quite a rigorous way. It has a large cadre of lawyers, some in the military advocate general corps, some as parts of other 
pieces of the the Israeli government structure. They have a professional independence in addition to advising those military um, commanders. And that means that they have an obligation to bring to this role the same ethical duty that they would bring to any other legal role. And so specifically, they need to take into account all of the circumstances in a given situation, and they need to give sufficient guidance that it allows those commanders to whom they're um, speaking to take that advice into account. So in other words, we all know the rules of humanitarian law, the principle, let's say, of distinction as just one example. It's a very vague rule to start with, but it's been made very, very concrete over time. And so it's important that these lawyers who are trained in the laws of armed conflict, who are familiar with case law, and who have studied other conflicts before, that they use all of that knowledge in a given context to provide advice that is well-reasoned and, and actionable. In your, your notes, your statement, you specifically warn lawyers who are playing that kind of role that they face potentially being charged themselves with war crimes if they are complicit in the commission of war crimes. So a couple of additional points there. Yes, we do that. Exactly. And I think that's important because the key point here is that lawyers must carry out their role with due diligence and with the utmost of the principle of humanity. And to say something again about Israeli um, lawyers advising the military, scholars, including Israeli scholars, have said that there's actually a particularly strong capacity on the part of those lawyers. One scholar actually called it a veto power. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it was found to be so by an Israeli scholar. So on the issue of complicity, the first advice we give and the, the call that we make is to deny legal authorization to unlawful targeting, unlawful operations. So it's a preventive one. And that's really the main call here is to say, when undertaking your role, you must prevent foreseeable violations of the laws of war. And then, of course, we remind the lawyers that there is the possibility of accomplice liability under international humanitarian law. So without getting into the details of, of which different tribunals have interpreted laws of uh, complicity and conspiracy, we can see pretty clearly, though, that lawyers could potentially become liable under international law for either green lighting an unlawful action or um, operation or potentially omitting to, to prevent it. And that was Margaret Satterthwaite, the United Nations Special Rapporteur of the Independence of Judges and Lawyers. And I'm sure we will be uh, returning to ask these questions again as to uh, how targeting has worked and who has made decisions and what possibly might be cases that come up at the International Criminal Court. And that's our roundup of the year. Yes, it's been a very busy and interesting 2023. The news really hasn't stopped. And I feel like we are also kind of running headlong uh, to the finish line uh, while still churning out podcasts and, and writing stuff. We can do a short look ahead. It looks like 2024 will be just as busy. Of course, unfortunately, probably we will still have Ukraine and Gaza to report upon. 
Um, we also have some very interesting decisions coming up from the International Court of Justice with advisory opinions on climate change and on Israel-Palestine. We expect to report more on that. And I think that we should mention right at the end of the year that we are really appreciative of those who've signed up to support us on Patreon and to get the additional uh, podcast that we do there with friend of the pods, Molly Quell. I'm just going to run through the names of the people who've signed up since we last gave a shout out. So we have George Georgescu, Marina, uh, Marissa, Thank you all very much. Uh, Sem Kaiser, I happen to know Sem. He's uh, a penniless student, so I'm very appreciative, Sem, of your uh, buying us a cup of coffee once a month. Uh, Helena, Kailin Chen, Dr. Laszlo Sarkani, Mr. Hare, who I think may have come to the wrong podcast, but you never know. And then uh, Zumreta Yahich, who I also know. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Zumreta, for supporting the podcast on Patreon. If you want to reach out and support us during the next year, very appreciative if you do. The money goes to our regular producer so that uh, she gets uh, a bit of funding out of this. And uh, we really just enjoy making the podcast generally. So uh, it's not like we're uh, we're asking you to, to fund our whole lifestyles, but we're just asking you if you enjoy it too, then feel free to uh, to join up on Patreon. And I think we should also mention we don't make this podcast alone. This wonderful uh, end of year roundup was done by our new intern, Susanna Polk. We also have Margarita Capacci, as always, who is our producer and does the, the Patreon podcast. We're two ladies with a microphone, but there's a lot of people circling around helping us out to make these podcasts. And if you're interested in helping out with that or interning with us also, you know, get in contact with us. We're always looking for people to help out. And what do we say at the end of the year? Best wishes for the new year. Uh, great justice year ahead, I hope. International justice year. <laughs> God, I, and I, you're really putting me on the spot. I have some pessimistic thoughts about international justice. Let's hope that the new year brings people what they want. And I wouldn't mind international justice news kind of calming down just a little bit. And, and mostly, I would really, really like to see all these conflicts that all these these cases are about to, to die down so that people get a bit of respite and a bit of rest and a bit of peace. Uh, so I mostly wish everybody a very peaceful new year. And while I, I realize that that puts our podcast out of commission, that would be the ideal, I think. The ideal would be that we don't need to make this podcast about war crimes. You're right. You're right. And now I sound extremely pious and <laughs> I can't counter that, so I'll just say goodbye and I hope that you have a good break, Steph. Yes, thank you. You too. Bye-bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.